You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Peter Richardson is the author of American Prophet, The Life and Work of Kerry McWilliams. His new book is A Bomb in Every Issue, How the Short, Unruly Life of Ramparts Magazine Changed America. Thank you for joining me, Peter. Oh, thank you for having me. Peter, this is a fascinating book about a magazine that, that many people don't know about but did have a huge impact. Give us an idea of what Ramparts was in general. I mean, Right. Well, it started as a Catholic literary quarterly. Mm-hmm. And in the spirit of that, I should probably make my own confession. I really didn't know what Ramparts Magazine was until a few years ago when I was doing the work for the Carrie McWilliams biography. I ended up interviewing several people who wrote for The Nation when Carrie McWilliams was the editor there. But in the course of interviewing them, they also mentioned I also worked, you know, I also wrote for Ramparts Magazine, Mm -hmm. which was in San Francisco. And I really didn't know that much about it because it folded when I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. But uh, over time, I came to meet other people, um, some in radio, some in print journalism, who had had something to do with Ramparts. And what I learned about it was that it had been this high-rolling, muckraking magazine based in San Francisco during the mid-60s. And that for a short time, it was probably the premier leftist publication of its day. And I thought, you know, I should probably know something about that. You know, I live in the Bay Area. I read books. I, you know, I care about politics. How come I don't know about that? So that curiosity started a, you know, two or three year reading and writing project. Now, um, it, as you mentioned, it started a, as a Catholic literary quarterly and how Explain just uh, the very beginnings of this magazine, because it's really interesting. And right after uh, Kennedy spoke, wasn't it? Right. Its first issue came out in May 1962, and it started as a literary quarterly. So there was no news. There wasn't really any politics. Mm -hmm. There were these colloquies on, on, um, you know, J.D. Salinger and Tennessee Williams. They hated Salinger. They thought he was a dirty man. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Which is ironic. It wasn't predictably liberal even, even in its, its, you know, literary commentary. Uh, They were always staunch on civil rights. Mm -hmm. And very early on, they got behind the farm workers and the civil rights movement in the South. But probably the thing that changed it quickly and and most dramatically was the hiring of Warren Hinkle, Mm -hmm. who was a young Catholic, University of San Francisco graduate who came down and decided, we need to juice this up. We need to make it a monthly, not a quarterly. We need to run news. We need to be a little bit more sensational. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was an an important, uh, you know, watermark or benchmark in the development of the magazine. And then Hinkle hired Robert Shear. And that was uh, also decisive. And in the meantime, right around the same time, they hired an art director named Dugald Sturmer. Mm-hmm. And Ed Keating's passion, he was the founding editor. The money came from his wife, Helen Keating. And Hinkle's showmanship and Shear's political commitments and Sturmer's visual imagination created a kind of um, chemistry that really, you know, Got, got the magazine off the ground. Definitely the sum 
greater than the whole of the parts. Yeah, uh, I think each one of those pieces was as indispensable. I don't think it would have been as successful without any one of them. May not been, have been successful at all. Um, and but once it started hitting, it hit fast and it hit big. And basically, the thing that launched it were these muckraking investigative re- reports, and then an incredible ability to get the larger mainstream media to pick up those stories and run with them because they really didn't have the kind of clout in the in the in the mainstream media on their own so what they were very successful at is getting the new york times to run their stories or to get time magazine to disparage their stories <laughs> yes, they, which was equally important in a way sure now um tell us a little bit they, i think the the one that got the really got the ball rolling was was uh uh judy stone on on the rolf hawk who Pope and the Nazis and, yeah. and, and, the, and the play. Yeah, unbelievable. I mean, you know, it, it made sense. They're a Catholic magazine. Mm-hmm. There's a play that comes out about, <clears throat> excuse me, about an anti-Semitic pope. And uh, Judy Stone writes an article about it. Now, Judy Stone's not a Catholic. She's Izzy Stone's, I.F. Stone's sister. and uh, But she has something. She gets this exclusive interview with this German playwright who's written this controversial play. And Ed Keating and Warren Hinkle go to New York and they hold a press conference in the Waldorf Hotel and say, this guy should be able to stage his play. Now, that was a very unpopular position, both in the church and in the mainstream press, especially the Hearst press. Of course, Hearst's stronghold was still right here in the San Francisco Bay area. So it was it was a controversial move and um, it, it, it led to a lot of other things, for example, Judy Stone got her brother, Mark Stone, interested in the magazine. He became their publicist in New York City. He's the guy that pitched their stories to the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And then later they got I.F. Stone. And later on, even after that, they got Mark Stone's son, Peter Stone, who now writes for the National Journal. So, you know, Judy and the Family Stone was an important part of the the, the magazine's development. And I should also add... Over time, the Catholic part of it became less and less pronounced. Never, it never disappeared, but they became more ecumenical and leading to, to um, a quip from I.F. Stone, who said there haven't been so many Jews involved in a Catholic operation since the Twelve Apostles. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that interests me is that for all its combativeness and its left-wingedness, it was very much a family affair in, in the way— not just in that it was a specific family, but the way the people came together and related to one another and the staff was like a family. There was all sorts of infighting, and, and there was really a, an almost hereditary passing of the torch. Wasn't yeah, there? it was. I mean, it started really when, when Hinkle hired Shear. Mm-hmm. They met through their wives. Right. They right. met socially, basically. Uh-huh. And then, you know, they that, that, that quartet that I just that I described a few moments ago— they really made it happen, and then Ed Keating began to be, after he stopped putting his money into the magazine, his role became less central. Hinkle's became more 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 central. And Hinkle was a was a combative kind of guy. He was yeah. a go-for-it guy. He was oh, not, he's not absolutely. no, no uh, fainting with Lily there. Especially with other people's money. <laughs> he was quite a spendthrift and really wanted quality mm-hmm. and paid lavishly when he had the money. And they went through a couple of fortunes. I mean, it's it's a serious business to talk to these people mm-hmm. today who are from those families. But um, over time, 
Hinkle <clears throat> decided to move on after the first bankruptcy. He started Scanlon's Magazine, where he matched Hunter Thompson with Ralph, illustrator Ralph Steadman and helped create Gonzo Journalism. Shear took over. But then she, the people that Shear had recruited during his time as managing editor, mostly his friends from Berkeley, ousted him. So by the end of 1969, David Horowitz and Peter Collier, both of whom were recruited by Shear, were pushing him out the door. Horal call. Yeah, ho call was running. <laughs> and I, 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 I use that phrase, ho call, um, as a play on what uh, Jessica Mitford used to call the magazine when Hinkle and Shear were running it. She used to call it Hink Shear. So I thought, well, why not call the next phase ho call? Although I don't think any, I'm not sure that's going to that's gonna get picked up anywhere. <laughs> um, one of the things that, uh, let's talk about some of, some of the, the muckraking and the investigation of uh, journalism they did. They certainly got, they broke their you know, teeth on uh, the civil rights workers and, and went from there. Tell, tell us about some of the more controversial um, investigative reporting they did. Well, a lot of it was whistleblower stories. Mm -hmm. So one of the very first big ones was they got a, a Green Beret to talk about what he saw in Vietnam. And he came back and he just said, it's all a lie. I quit. You know, he was a Catholic, a staunch anti-communist, and he, j he got back from a tour in Vietnam and just says, it's horrible. It's not working. Nothing we're doing over there is doing any good. And he said, anti-communism is a, is a poor substitute for democracy. And so that was huge. Don Duncan was his name. He recently appeared in a, in a documentary called Sir No Sir, which made the rounds a couple years ago, a really fine film. The next one they did was on the collaboration of Michigan State University and the CIA. Mm -hmm. Now, there wasn't a lot of critical reporting on the CIA at that time, 1966. Mm. Right. And it really alarmed people. What? You know, I mean, not only were we doing these covert operations, but you know, a legitimate university was being used as a front. So Bob Shear was able to dig up the documents. He actually found them in the Cowell Library over on the Berkeley campus. Wow. <laughs> contacted the person who was in charge who had resigned, you know, out of frustration with the CIA's role in the project that he was supposed to direct. And they did a story together. It appeared in the April 1966 issue, which showed in kind of typical fashion, this is a kind of typical... Um, story or big story for for ramparts they showed Madame Nu um, the uh, Vietnamese South Vietnamese leaders sister-in-law in a Michigan State University cheerleading outfit with a little pennant <laughs> so it was that kind of visual it was hu it was That's... humorous but it's a big hard-hitting story sure and it was no joke to the CIA the CIA immediately began investigating all of the rampart staffers illegally um, the CIA is not supposed to investigate U.S. citizens living in the United States, which meant that there had to be a cover-up. And when that was exposed by uh, Rampart's contributor and New York Times reporter, Cy Hirsch, you know, the CIA's problems were just beginning. And, and you ended up getting stricter congressional oversight of the CIA and the FBI. And some of that oversight was led by Frank Church, who was uh, Ed, founding, editor, founding publisher Ed Keating's uh, undergraduate friend from Stanford. And also their interview with Frank Church back in 64 about Vietnam was the first story that they did that was picked up by the, by the New York Times. Well, this is um, also 
it seems that Ramparts was constantly bubbling under the the biggest stories and, and the biggest events uh, of the 60s and the early 70s. Um, could you talk about, did, did when you talk to the people who were in Ramparts, did they ever feel kind of frustrated that it wasn't necessarily them in the headlines, it was their headlines that were generating headlines, or were they just happy to be getting stuff done? Happy to be getting stuff done, but they did make a lot of headlines. Many times the stories got picked up mm -hmm. by other news outfits, but that was part of their plan. They, mm -hmm. they considered that a success. In fact, that's how the editors kept score. You know, so Hinkshire had five stories on the front page of the New York Times, and Hocall only had one or two. Mm. And I, you know, I learned that from Peter Collier. He said, you know, most of the work got done under Hinkle and Shear. So no, they, that was part of their very much part of their plan. I mean, their circulation was maybe two hundred and fifty thousand. They knew to be successful, they had to make waves in the in the in the media at large, and that meant the New York Times a lot, a lot of the time. So they were they were quite happy with that. Robert Shear ran for office, which is something I didn't realize. Either. Unbelievable, yeah. <laughs> Talk about that. So he decides, you know, we need to stop this war. And the Democratic incumbent in the East Bay in Oakland and Berkeley was a mainstream, you know, liberal consensus type guy named Jeffrey Cohalen, labor guy. Can't, he used to used to deliver milk. He, had a, he drove a milk truck. Then he got some graduate degrees. He got involved in politics. He married Phil Burton into the into Phil Burton's family. You know Phil Burton, who was the big kingpin, uh, Democratic kingpin. Boy, this is a, a real family affair. Yeah. Everywhere oh, yeah. you go, there's somebody's relative, huh? Absolutely. So, Shear said this guy's not not against the war. He hasn't come out against the war, and there were some other issues that he wanted to see some action on: racism, poverty. Not in the American South or with farm workers, but in Oakland, mm. and that wasn't something that that the incumbent Jeffrey Cohalen was really paying a lot of attention to. He was a good liberal, in general, in the LBJ mold, but he was not challenging the liberal consensus in the way that that Shear wanted to. So he he made a run for it, and very very unlikely. He was 29 years old. He didn't know anybody, he didn't have a machine, and he got 45% of the vote in the Democratic primary. That was shocking. They were scared. And Shear and Ramparts in general, they really didn't like liberals. I mean, they went after Kennedy even, which seems kind of shocking. In, in yeah, not, not so much Kennedy. They, they, they did not go, you know, they kind of poo-pooed Pat Brown. Mm -hmm. And Clark Kerr, the University of California administrator, was never a favorite of theirs. I mean, to challenge the war meant they had to challenge the Democratic Party, mm. and they had to challenge Cold War liberalism. Mm. Uh, I think, in a way, they they would have loved it if the Democratic Party had come out against the war, and they wouldn't have to have done all that stuff. I think Bob Shear used to say, you know, you know, two cheers for LBJ. Mm. <laughs> um, but you know, they weren't coming out against the war, and that was a big issue for the new left and Ramparts magazine. And so they they went ahead and made their own little party. And I say later in the book, it was very similar to what happened when the sort of Netroots people, bloggers and so on, targeted Joe Lieberman, um, the, the Connecticut senator, who was right on all the issues except the invasion of Iraq. And he was unyielding on that. So they targeted him and they ran Ned Lamont. And, they, and you know, it was a very similar kind of thing. Hmm. Lamont vanquished him in the Democratic primary, but um, 
Lieberman came back and won in the general election. Now, uh, Ramparts was influential in many ways, and, and they actually inspired uh, Martin Luther King to turn against Vietnam. I'm glad you brought that up because that's a great example of the kind of direct impact that they had. In 1967, January 1967, Dr. King was very weary, and he decided to go on a vacation. He wanted to go to Jamaica. And when he was at the airport, he bought some he bought some magazines and was flipping through them. And one of them was Ramparts. And he was eating lunch with a friend, and he just he just shoved his lunch away. And his friend said, "What's the matter? The food doesn't taste good." And he said, "No food is going to taste good until we stop this war." He had been looking at a photo essay in Ramparts called "The Children of Vietnam," which showed the effects of bombing the civilian population, including the children, including with napalm bombs in Vietnam, and, and King just said, I'm coming out against this war. And all of his advisors said, don't do it. Don't get into foreign policy. We're starting to make you know, some good progress on civil rights. Let's just focus on that. And he said, no, coming out against the war, which he did on April 4th, big speech on April 4th, 1967, exactly one year to the day before he was assassinated. He gave a big um, speech at Riverside Church in New York, and then he gave Ramparts exclusive rights to run to run the text of the speech in their May issue. And he did get criticized. The New York Times criticized him. And the Washington Post criticized him. But he said, you know what? I needed to do that. As soon as I saw that piece in Ramparts, I needed to do that. Now, I don't know about you, Rick, but I don't know very many examples of journalists having that kind of impact on a leader of that stature. And um, King made no bones about it. You can read it in all of his biographies. And, uh, I mean, that's, that is a, that's high-impact publishing. And interestingly enough, it's a photo essay. So we're not just talking about the writing. We're also talking about, as you said, the, the, chemo- the chemistry with, of Dugald Sturmer with his that kind of, when you're looking at a photo essay, the layout matters. It really matters, especially in that case. In- interestingly, the foreword to that piece was written by Benjamin Spock, Dr. Spock, really? the pediatrician. <laughs> That's the kind of people they, they could bring into the magazine mm-hmm. and, and raise the profile of the, of the stories they were doing. But you're right about the photos. Those photos were everything, and they had a lot of debates. Which photos should we, should we use? How big should they be? And Sturmer told me when I interviewed him it was the toughest thing he ever, done, he ever did. I mean, people were in tears putting this layout together. And so... It wasn't an easy thing. It wasn't always, you know, a lot of fun and games at Ramparts. But uh, actually, they did have a lot of fun, too. Art direction, changing the war. That's a, that's a fascinating <laughs> example. So. Now, um, uh, there was a, a very famous uh, confrontation between Shear and William F. Buckley. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, William F. Buckley had a show called Firing Line. I remember watching this with my family. It was a very rare sort of program at, at that time. He would invite people on, and then they would have these debates, and he invited Shear on. By that time, Shear had become kind of the public face of, the, of, the, of Ramparts magazine. So, you know, I went down, dutifully went down to Stanford, University went to the Hoover Institution and dug out, which controls all the rights to the firing line tapes, and watched this show. And I mean, it was a very rare kind of thing on television at that time. I mean, we're used to it now, the food fights that you see (laughs) on cable TV. Mm -hmm. 
But at that time, it was very rare that two people really went after each other on television over, over an important issue. But that's exactly what happened with Shear and Buckley. Now, Buckley, I think, probably would have been sympathetic to Ramparts when it first started. It was mm-hmm. Catholic, sure. know, intellectual magazine. Mm-hmm. He didn't like it so much when, uh, when Ramparts started going after the CIA mm-hmm. and got involved in foreign policy or cr- criticized U.S. foreign policy. And what I learned, and I'm not sure I ever knew this before, was that was that Buckley was a former CIA agent. Mm. And he even wrote an article about it for National Review, which I was able to kind of Google and pull up. And I thought, that's interesting. Maybe that's why he wasn't crazy about Ramparts. <laughs> or maybe that was another reason he didn't really like Ramparts. But it's very telling. The, the title of that episode of Firing Line is is Ramparts Magazine Un-American. Right. They, now, at that time, as you know, I mean, they were only 10 years before they were ruining people's reputations and careers by attacking their patriotism. Mm-hmm. Shear wasn't having any of that. Shear's, you know, I'm not, that doesn't bother me. You can call me that uh, the whole time. But let's talk about the real issue. And the real issue is, what are we trying to do in Vietnam? Why are we trying to do that? And, you know, let's not talk about each other's patriotism. Let's talk about the policy issue where thousands of lives are being lost, American and Vietnamese. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. You're still speaking out against the wars, whatever, wherever they are. Right. And we're still having people accuse one another of being un-American for that very reason. It hasn't really changed a lot, has it? Absolutely. I think that's really important. I, I do mention one of the things I learned in my research was that at that time, Jerry Rubin, who wasn't ever on the staff of Ramparts, but did contribute some pieces and was actually featured on one or two covers, he was a Berkeley radical activist, and he was called before the House Committee on Un-American Activities about the same time, and he appeared in full colonial garb, you know, <laughs> with a three-pointed hat. He said, "I'm an American revolutionary." I mean, they were, you know, there there was a branch of the new left that was mocking these old Cold War tactics. Mm. Uh, Ramparts never went quite that far, but but they were part of that same milieu. Like we're not going along. With the old with the old games and the old arguments and you know you neutralize or marginalize me by saying I don't love my country as much as you do uh, they also um, had a big connection with the Panthers and Cleaver and, and and so tell us and even in subsequent trials tell us about that yeah well uh, Eldridge Cleaver was in prison and he was writing um, pieces that he wanted to be published and then that would help him get out of prison and so he was sending these pieces to a, a San Francisco radical lawyer named Beverly Axelrod, who knew Ed Keating. She showed the pieces to Keating. Keating read them and was moved by them. And he helped arrange Cleaver's release from prison. Um, I believe by that time, he's, he was the first pieces came out, I think he was in San Quentin. I think he was in Folsom after that. So he was released in December 66. And as part of his parole, you know, he had to have this job, and Ed Keating gave him, gave him a job at Ramparts Magazine. But things started moving very quickly as soon as he got there. He interviewed Betty Shabazz, who was Malcolm X's widow, at the Ramparts office at 301 Broadway in San Francisco. But I'm not sure he knew that her security detail would be the Black Panthers who showed up at the office 
bristling with arms and with police cars, you know, screaming down to 301 Broadway. And there was a showdown, an armed showdown, between Huey Newton and the San Francisco police, where Newton was actually jacking shotgun shells into a shotgun and begging or taunting the officer to pull his to pull his weapon. And the officer didn't go for the bait. And uh, Cleaver was watching the whole thing and just said, I want to join the Black Panthers, which he did, even though he was still on parole. And then he accompanied them up to the state assembly when they walked onto the floor of the state legislature protesting a, gun con a new gun control bill. Um, and, of course, by that, after that, they were huge media celebrities. Sheer, or rather, Cleaver was covering them for Ramparts magazine. He was arrested mm -hmm. with them, but he was unarmed. He was covering the event for Ramparts, so he was released. But that began a long relationship between Cleaver and the Black Panthers and between Ramparts and the Black Panthers. Another long relationship was between Ramparts and Ronald Reagan. They wasn't a friendly one, though, was it? No, it wasn't. Um, I mean, they didn't they didn't like Reagan, obviously, but they weren't that enthusiastic about Pat Brown mm -hmm. when Reagan ran against the incumbent governor, Pat Brown, in 1966. And it's one of Big these little mistake. stories. Yeah, they they poo pooed Reagan. They didn't take him seriously. And as Shear told me later when I interviewed him, they, they overestimated the strength of the liberal consensus. They really didn't think that Ronald Reagan would be a formidable politician. Uh, of course, they were totally wrong about that. So, you know, they, they didn't do everything perfectly. But one of the little stories that cracked me up, and there are many in the book, um, but Shear told me when I interviewed him that he actually went up to cover the Reagan campaign at one point and fell asleep in one of the rooms that the Reagan campaign had rented and woke up to find Reagan, who didn't know Shear was in his room, changing his trousers. <laughs> really? Yeah, you know, you can't make that stuff up. I assume that's true. Um, they, Ramparts got caught up in some conspiracy theories. With, tell us about some of, of what, they were, what they were interested in. Well, the big one was the JFK conspiracy theory. They, uh, especially Ed Keating and, and Warren Hinkle, never bought the Warren report. Mm -hmm. Looked like a whitewash to them. And they began investigating it. And I think they were probably the first, you know, uh, big distribution outlet that, that started questioning all this stuff. And that, of course, took on a life of its own. Shear was never into it. He didn't. He he at one point tried to banish all the JFK conspiracy theorists from the from the office. But Keating and Hinkle loved it. It was just the kind of sensational stuff that they really liked. And Hinkle's motto, and it's something to keep in mind when you when you read Ramparts and think about their success. He picked it up from um, a line that he heard from a movie star: "Whatever you do, kid, always serve it with a little dressing." And when Hinkle was in charge of Ramparts, they served it with plenty of dressing. And the JFK conspiracy stuff was part of that. And, of course, it led to some other things. Now, in typical Ramparts fashion, you know, they were very seriously questioning the Warren Report, which is mm -hmm. a very serious document about a serious issue, mm -hmm. the assassination of the president. But that didn't stop them from running a review of a fake book in the magazine in which they ran the debunking of the Warren report. 
hundreds of letters came in trying to buy this fake book that they had reviewed as a joke. <laughs> and uh, so that irreverence was also a big part of their success, I think. They never lost that. Now, their success kind of withered and faded as, as they went through bankruptcies. Talk about the, you know, the unraveling of the, of the left and, you know, Susan Sontag's time there and, you know, Robert Shear did his last gasp, Chapter 11, bankruptcy. Right, right. Well, they, they never had enough money. And a mm. lot of people don't realize this, but political magazines don't make money. Mm. Left, right, up, down, center. It's hard to make money if you start a political magazine. The nation has almost never made money. It's been around for over 150 years. Mother Jones, National Review, Weekly Standard. It's not a good way to make money. Mm. Still, people want to do it, and it, it, it serves an important role, I think, in our in our democracy. But you know, it's not it's not a great way to go. And they did run out of money. They ran through the Keatings fortune. They ran through Fred Mitchell's fortune. And by the end of 1968, they were on the respirator. So they filed for bankruptcy. As I mentioned earlier, Hinkle bugged out. Shear took over. They reorganized and came out firing, but it didn't have the same production values. Um, didn't, and over time, it began to lose circulation. And they didn't do big blockbuster stories. Um, you know, investigative reporting is expensive. Mm. It's a lot cheaper to run opinion and analysis. And over time, things began to wane. The money ran out. And the glamour wasn't there. With Hinkshear Hink gone, you know, Horowitz and Collier had a harder time going out and wooing the big money liberals and getting them to cough up. And by that time, the editorial line had become more radical and a little more ideological mm. as well. And it lost the whimsy visually, and you know, the Sturmer's, you know, visual whimsy, and then Hinkle's sort of insouciance and nonchalance, which leavened the hard-hitting material. Right, away. right. Makes that kind of ideological stuff go down a little smoother. It's, it's always easier with a little bit of a laugh and a little yeah, bit of Yeah, it really is true, and it's so easy to lose sight of that. Mm. And, um, you know, it's it's death for magazines when all they do is run grim story after grim story every month. Now, there were some startling stories mm -hmm. in Ramparts, and they were, they were not designed to make us all feel better. No. Uh, they were designed to provoke and and sometimes alarm. But um, the presentation was always both professional and, as I say, very often irreverent, mm -hmm. even with the, the most grave stories. Right. So right. that's something to keep in mind, I think, uh, for, for media today. Now, I, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about one guy that you mentioned, and I love this description, David Opst, the Forrest Gump of the New Left. <laughs> he seemed to be everywhere. <laughs> He wasn't, you know, he wasn't an editor so much, but but he he did get involved with the magazine. By that time, he had started an alternative news service. He was in grad school in Berkeley in the 60s, so he was present for all that. He was in Chicago and Miami in 1968. You know, he had been in Vietnam. He had been in D.C. He helped Cy Hirsch break the Me Lai story. You know, he just seemed to be everywhere, and he ended up at in Berkeley when, when Horowitz and Collier took over. His friend, Bo Burlingham, became the managing editor. But by that time, you know, the air was sort of leaking out. Mm. And Opes looked around and said, you know what, it's not here. But he still landed on his feet. 
while he was crashing on Bo Burlingham's floor, Carl Bernstein called him up and said, you know, we've got this book, my, my, my colleague Bob Woodward and I, and, you know, we think we need an agent. You think you can help us sell this book? <laughs> and Ope said, well, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll try, you know. Of course, it ended up being All the President's Men, which was the big, you know, Watergate story. But that, that's also interesting because by that time, the Washington Post and the New York Times were picking up their game. They were going after these stories. Five years before that, they really weren't. Mm. You know, Rampart showed these bigger outlets that there's an audience for this, that, that it's part of their job to go after these big stories. It's not okay to just let it float under the bridge the way a lot of mainstream media tends to do. I've been speaking with Peter Richardson. His new book is A Bomb in Every Issue, How the Short, Unruly Life of Ramparts Magazine Changed America. Thank you for speaking with me, Peter. Thank you, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.